Humanity's role in the degradation of the natural world is one of the defining issues of our time. But when we're talking about the impact of industry on the environment, it's so easy to get lost in the numbers and the jargon. But seeing is believing, which is why some media organizations have begun to embrace photography as a powerful tool in depicting the environmental and human toll of pollution. Later this episode, we'll hear from Ian Wilms, a documentary photographer who's going to tell us about one of the most powerful photographs he's captured among the thousands he's taken over the course of his career. We're also going to revisit an old conversation that Pull Quotes had back in 2017 with photojournalist Ed Ooh. But first, we'll hear from Madigan Cotterill, a journalist at The Review who's joining us to talk about her own work and to introduce the concept of conservation photography. Would you mind just telling me a little bit about the feature that you've been working on for the RJ this year? Yeah, for sure. So my feature, Climate Visuals, is looking into how journalists, writers, and photographers can actively use their cameras as tools to combat the climate crisis. So we kind of know that covering the topic of climate change can be really difficult for several reasons. So scientific information is often confusing and it can easily get misinterpreted. So unlike words, um, which require an understanding of language, visuals can be interpreted and understood quickly and by almost anyone. So this enables a wider range of audiences to understand the message. So through my feature, I really wanted to emphasize how we can take advantage of the power of visuals to spread messages about the crisis. So, you know, images have the power to hold and evoke emotion more quickly. So I hope that my piece is able to kind of resonate with some readers and change the way that we can think about covering the climate crisis. Right. And the topic is is kind of a personal one for you, right? Because you you yourself are a photojournalist or a photographer. Yeah, I definitely like to think of myself as a photojournalist. Um, I began kind of my work doing predominantly photography, and then it moved into more writing because I realized when you compare images with the written word, stories um, hold much more power than just an image or just written words. So yeah, I do like to think of myself as a photojournalist and like to use my camera to help tell stories. Right. And can you, would you mind just introducing the concept of conservation photography? Yeah, so conservation photography is about using images to help evoke and advocate for action. So um, it's more about what happens after the image and the impact that it creates as opposed to the initial um, observations. So conservation images typically focus on the environment or an element of the natural world. And the point is that they're supposed to send a message about the impact humans have. It doesn't matter whether you're documenting drunken hijinks during a night out or capturing the moment a mother holds her newborn for the first time. With every closure of a camera's shutter, a story is told about a tiny corner of the world as it was at a specific moment in time. Over the course of his career, Ian Wilms has used his lens to tell all sorts of stories. He photographed the fallout from the rail disaster in Lac Mégantic, Quebec in 2013 that claimed the lives of 42 of the town's citizens. He documented his own father's struggles after an accident left him comatose in a foreign ICU. 
Telling compelling and emotional stories has often led Ian to bear witness to incredible moments of human suffering. He's here to tell us about one of those moments, a moment that he found to be especially profound and particularly devastating. A warning to listeners, this story contains descriptions of terminal illness. Mr. Fish, how are you? I'm good, Ian. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. We spoke before, right? We did. We did. I, I called you uh, last week for a fact-checking interview, and I, I promised to do everything in my power to refrain from using the phrase, would it be accurate to say during this interview? <laughs> well, that's that's uh, won't wouldn't bother me anyway. <laughs> but I'll try not to use the phrase shining a light in the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a good title for the episode oh gosh no please <laughs> i'm 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 so tired of of uh photographers particularly but also journalists using that one what we've asked you to do today is select one photograph that that you felt you know was was particularly poignant and i was wondering if, if right now you'd be okay with describing to me the photograph that you've selected Absolutely. So this photograph takes place in a bedroom and there are five, five people in the image. And most of the people are um, experiencing grief, if not all of the people, uh, very obviously in their, in their expressions and body language. And in the middle there there's a man lying in bed uh and he's quite thin and all of the all of the grief in the surroundings are 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 clearly directed towards his condition um it's a very intimate photograph and it's a very it's a very warm domestic familial setting there's hangers in the background holding t-shirts and there's handmade uh, art on the wall various personal effects on the bedside table um, there's a couple of uh, angel cherub type figurines on the wall over the bed with an eagle feather and the art is um indigenous themed uh and this this photograph does take place in an indigenous community um this is fort chippewan alberta which is uh an indigenous community that's located downriver from the oil sands and the man in this photograph who's lying in his bed surrounded by family and friends is named warren simpson and this image was taken uh, in the last hours of his life, um, the condition that Warren Simpson had was called cholangeal carcinoma, which is an extremely rare and aggressive bile duct cancer, which typically occurs in one in 100,000 people each year. In Fort Chippewan, which is a community of 1,200 people, they have had 
six cases of this cancer in the last 15 years, along with numerous other health problems, uh, cancers and uh, neurological problems, uh, complications with births. Um, and doctors have been raising alarm about this for, gosh, almost 20 years now. 2003 it started. So this photograph is, is very important because it gets to the heart of why I spent as much time as I did photographing in that area. So, so you're a photographer and you're there along with Warren's family and, you know, you're, you're standing there bearing witness to, to the end of this human being's life. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, what it's like to do that, to be there as a photographer, you know, in this moment and yet outside of it and trying to document it. Hmm. Well, there's a real there's a real dichotomy of feelings happening. Um, obviously, it's very hard. It's hard to watch anybody suffer, um, especially somebody as sweet and kind as Warren was. Um, as a professional, uh, it's also a tremendous honor to be, to be entrusted with, with that responsibility to, to, to be there and, and to, to impose the presence of a stranger, not, not just a stranger, but a stranger wielding a camera upon not only this man who, who is, who's chosen to live the last minutes of his life in front of a camera, um, but also his family who, and friends who would very much rather grieve in private. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's challenging because, um, to get access to a photograph like this, you absolutely have to be emotionally invested in the people you photograph. There has to be sincere connection and trust and friendship uh, and possibly even love. So Warren's death affected me like, like it affected many of his friends. Um, and I was dealing with that on one hand. Um, but also professionally, I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to do a good job. Um, because Warren did invite me to be there in his home in the last days of his life. Um, I, I, I stayed in the home. I slept there for over a week. Um, and so I was working, but I was also, I was also a member of the household. I was helping with dishes. I was making coffee. I was holding people while they cried. I cried. Um, so the line between journalist and subject, uh, is non-existent in a scenario like that. And that's, that's why I say I'm, I'm a documentary photographer. This is, this is what I learned from um, the photographers who influenced me most deeply, people like Mary Ellen Mark, uh, who were intensely invested in the people that they photographed. Right. And w would you mind just talking a little bit about how you came to be embedded with Warren and his family in that way? I mean, in a word, it was time. Uh, I 
I first went to Fort Chippewan in the fall of 2010. And this photograph was taken in the late fall, early winter of 2019. Um, there's a woman in the photograph in the middle, Alice Rigney. And she's a relative of Warren's. And Alice and I first met on my very first trip to Fort Chippewan. Alice remained a friend and a sort of a mentor to me over the years as I worked on this project. And she was the connection. She introduced me to Warren. And she told me when Warren and I first met that he had this cancer. And I discussed my work with Warren and, and he trusted me. We became friends and we spent quite a bit of time together over two of my trips to Fort Chippewan. And, um, when I got word that Warren's health was declining, you know, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to go or not, but it was Warren who invited me and, and it was Warren who made the choice that I was to stay at his house while I was there. Right. And, and what, you know, what, if any, was, was the effect of this photo when you released it publicly? What, what were, what were some of the reactions like? You know, some people can't really comprehend how you would get such a photograph or how you might end up gaining access to such a situation or how you would handle it. Um, but by and large, the public response so far has not really been seen because it has yet to be uh, published widely enough. And and I'm also I'm also wondering about um, about Warren's motivations. Like, why do you think he wanted you to be there to to photographically document what what ended up being the last moments of his life? Well, Warren Warren wanted people to know about cancer rates in Fort Chippewan because he knew like anybody else that the cancer rates were unnaturally high. And for years he had heard warnings about how the industry is getting people sick. And he worked for the industry like, like many um, able-bodied people in Fort Chippewan and Fort Mackay, because there, there are almost no employment opportunities there anymore because of the oil industry presence. Um, he worked for Suncor and he loved his job at Suncor. Um, he, he loved the lifestyle that it afforded him. But when he got sick, um, I think a lot of things changed in his mind about what that industry meant for his community. So he started, um, he started a blog and he wanted to, he wanted to chronicle his experiences um, as he died, he, he wanted, he wanted the story to be out there. He wanted people to know that Fort Chippewan is being poisoned by this industry. And he was, he was absolutely certain in his mind that his cancer was caused by his community's proximity to the industry. Um, so, you know, this, this was, he, he made a very selfless and courageous choice to invite me to, to be part of this process. You know, he was, he was too weak at this point to continue writing. And, um, he knew that I had been invested in this for a long time. So he, he invited me to, to take it on with him. 
Right. Right. Wow. That's, that's, you know, you mentioned the pressure of being asked to fulfill a task like that, documenting the end of someone's life. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, on a personal level, how, how do you cope with with the the pressure of that moment, with with the closeness you develop to your subjects, and then having to to sometimes witness negative things that happen to them. Self care, it's it's very important. Um, it's you have to talk, you have to take care of your your physiological health, um, stay active, eat well. Um, open up to friends and family, talk to professionals, um, be aware of signs and symptoms of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and if you have those symptoms, then, um, you know, tell a doctor, uh, and follow their advice. Um, journalism often, often comes with trauma. So you, you have to be proactive about it. Otherwise you're not going to last, <laughs> as a professional, either that or, or you become, uh, kind of callous and, and detached. Right. And, and what, you know, in an ideal world, when people see this photograph and, and I guess the whole series of photographs that you've captured in Fort Chippewan that, that illustrate the fallout from the proximity to the oil industry, what do you, what do you hope to accomplish with these photos? I mean, what do you want to inspire within the viewers when they see them? Outrage. People should be outraged because the, the, the government of Canada in concert with industry has deemed communities like Fort Chippewan as sacrifice zones and everybody within them and the cultural practices that have existed in these places for, for centuries. It's all sacrificial to them in the name of, of progress and economic growth. Um, and for Chippewan and, 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 and Warren's story, it's, it's just one example of a trend that exists right across this country. Uh, colonialism never stopped. It's just, um, the, the, the forced industrial contamination and destruction of indigenous territories is, is just the latest incarnation of that process. Um, so, I want people to understand that. I want people to understand the historical context of the industrial destruction of indigenous lands and vote accordingly. Well, that's, you know, it, it's an admirable goal. And, and I, I certainly hope you're right. And I hope the photo does get people thinking, um, you know, about the colonial history of this country and, and how we can all work to better understand and, and remedy some of its worst effects. So, Ian, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to say a heartfelt thank you for agreeing to take the time out of your day to talk to me and, and discuss this, this photograph and tell us about Warren's story. It's my pleasure, Joe. I, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity. It's not the first time on Pull Quotes that we've discussed the power of photography. In 2017, former review journalist Emily Pardo sat down with photojournalist Ed U. Ed was discussing some work he had done in a region of Kazakhstan known as the Polygon. Beginning in the late 1950s, the area had been used as a testing ground for the Soviet nuclear program. 
Over the course of four decades, over 450 nuclear weapons were detonated within a large patch of uninhabited steppe in the region. Wu traveled to the area to photograph residents of the towns and villages adjacent to the test site. The people who live there suffer from extremely high rates of cancer, birth defects, premature aging, and various other maladies due to exposure to the radiation. So when I was in Kazakhstan, I think I try to spend as much time as with people as possible. And often in like, I try very intimate spaces where people can be vulnerable, but also show their humanity. And so when I first met Myra, uh, she has at that time, a 16 year old daughter who uh, was born with microcephalia and she, um, she was conscious, but basically couldn't do anything for herself. Um, she had to all, Janor had to be by her mother's side 24 seven. And so I met them in the morning and, you know, we, I interviewed them and I learned about their day and I spent, we would keep going back there for days and days and days. And I thought to myself, well, like, how do I show that Janor never leaves her mother's side and a mother's love is such that she'll never leave her daughter's side? And so I asked, you know, is it okay to stay during the night and film you at night? And I know that's a lot to ask because, you know, like, it's how does a journalist come in and ask to basically, like, photograph them in bed sleeping? But that's what I asked. And I built up that trust over multiple visits. And I told them, like, look, I want to show your emotion and how much you love your daughter and just that attachment. And so I stayed there for quite some time and just, like, waited until they drifted off to sleep. And I kind of got on the bed and photographed them from from above. And that's something that you can't just walk into. You need to build up to that. And the reason why, when they, when I even like asked that, they said, well, what, why is that? Like, why would you want to photograph that? And I told them like, look, I need to show this love and intimacy. So someone, regardless of their culture, their language, no matter where they are, can relate to this image. And, you know, I showed them that photo and, um, Janur, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, the mother started crying and she said, that's, that's every day for me. And um, if we can try to capture that semblance of intimate truth, I think that's, that's why we do what we do. Was it hard emotionally to be like learning about these people that like you hadn't, you didn't know about how this had really impacted them? It was difficult getting people's trust at first. Uh, I think Clearly, when you're meeting people who have, um, who are born uh, handicapped or they're visually deformed, you know, like it, there is a immediate reaction that a photographer is coming in to exploit, you know, their tragedy and to exploit the way they look. And so, going in, that was what I had to explain to people: is if people don't know what happened then how can any meaningful policy change come out of it? And how do we make sure that something like this doesn't happen again? And so I think that's the baseline going in, is you have to um, get people to trust what your intentions are. And uh, that, I think, at first, if people are um, hesitant to speak to you, you know, I think 
that's completely fair because you're a foreigner coming in and you're asking to be a witness to very intimate moments, very private moments in people's homes. And that's a lot to ask. And I think you have to be sensitive to how people would feel being photographed. And I think um, what it takes is time and it takes building a connection before you even start to take a photo. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times uh, in the stories I do, I will just go without a camera or go with a camera in my bag. And you connect with people as from human being to human being first. And only when I personally feel like I've been able to build up a sense of rapport and trust and they understand what my intentions are and what I'm trying to do, do I maybe take out the camera and start to photograph. Every story is different, but I think in the story I did in Kazakhstan, it's a very specific context because it's not like there's anything immediate happening. And um, one question that people would ask me is like, you know, journalists come and go and nothing changes. Uh, how are you so different? And that's a question that I really struggled with when I first got there. And it's a question that I still ask myself to this day. Was it worth doing the story? Did I help at all? Did it lead to anything meaningful? And um, there are a few cases where the photos I published led to people internationally you know, donating money to uh, some of these families. There were cases where research companies would see someone who was disabled who couldn't move uh, and then they would, one person uh, was offered like a, an experimental device to help them like type, you know, and that's because they saw our photos. So it's hard to say if like my photos did anything super groundbreaking, but, you know, like I, I can at least feel to myself that like for the few individuals I photographed, like maybe something good came out of that experience and their story being shared with the world. And, you know, that's really all that you can really ask for sometimes. Earlier, you were talking about um, being wary of being exploitative. Um, and I was just wondering if, A, you do ever feel that way. And uh, are there is there like a list of ethical things you have running in the back of your mind when you go to photograph someone? I think about exploitation and representation like every day. And I, I think about why is it that I'm here to do this? And oftentimes, like, maybe I'm not the best person to do a story. I think, you know, working in the Middle East uh, for the last decade or so, oftentimes, you know, as journalists, as foreign journalists, we are immune to so many of the things that local journalists face. You know, if there is backlash for any story, at best, I get deported. But if you're a local journalist in Turkey, for example, you can be imprisoned. So, for example, recently I was banned from Turkey. Uh, and it is, it's a shame that I can't go back, but at the same time, like, I'm really lucky that I have a Canadian passport that, you know, that's not my home. But if you're a Turkish journalist, like you are in a completely different situation. I think a lot of times people don't think about the dangers that local journalists face. And the reason I bring this up is because there are things that sometimes only a foreigner can do because of, let's say, the dangers or having an outside context. And there's other stories that a local should do. And I think the best kind of journalism is when outsiders work in tandem with the people who have a stake in that community. Because oftentimes in conflict, it takes an outsider who has zero stake in both in any side to be able to seek out a more impartial version of truth. Whereas if you're living in a conflict and you are a part of, let's say, one sect, one culture, one religion, 
you know, you might be biased in a certain way. And so I think it really takes a consideration of how are we best representing truth by working with people there and by being an outsider. So when I think about all those things summed up, uh, sometimes then I think to myself, like, it, I, I can offer an objective point of view for, let's say, a conflict or a story that I have nothing to do with. But that applies in some contexts and other times like that doesn't apply because you're coming in as a Canadian or a Westerner, clearly more privileged. And, you know, like you, you have your own preconceived notions of things. So I think it's just really important to keep all those things in check and always be questioning what you're doing, why you're doing it and your motivations behind it. Yeah. And you'll never have the right answer, but I think it's important to ask the question. This week's episode of Pull Quotes was produced by Emma Jones with technical support by Lindsay Hammond. Our executive producer is Sonia Fada. The music you hear right now was written and produced by Paisley Sears. If you'd like to read Madigan's article about the way photojournalists are using photography to document the climate crisis, make sure to pick up a copy of the review this spring. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, Pull Quotes is available on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Stitcher and Spotify. Tune in for our next episode in two weeks, where I delve deeper into the question of how far the press should go in reporting on the perpetrators of violent attacks. But until then, stay safe, and thanks for listening.